there. Welcome in. It is Downtown the Podcast, episode number 86. From the Zone Radio Studios in Bangor, Maine, Rich Kimball here alongside producer, co-host Carrie Haskell. This is where our daily show, Downtown, originates every single weekday afternoon from 4 to 6 p.m. Eastern Time in the Zone Radio Stations in the state of Maine. Of course, uh, streaming audio on our website, downtownwithrichkimball.com. Program brought to you every week by Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. And every week we put together a couple of interesting conversations from our radio show show for you. Two good ones. Uh, This week, one from, uh, well, a woman who's done a lot in her career as uh, both a, a singer, songwriter, performer, television writer, and a founder of one of the most important comedy groups in the history of of comedy in this country, the Groundlings, talking about Tracy Newman. Also in the second half of the program, Jeff Abraham, who uh, makes his bones as a as a media guy, public relations guy for a lot of performers, but has written a wonderful book about performers who died doing what they love called The Show Won't Go On. Let's get things started, though, with a conversation with Tracy Newman, who has done an awful lot in her career as a member of the new Christie Minstrels, a founding member of the Groundlings, which has sent so many people on to shows like Saturday Night Live, including her sister, Lorraine Newman, who was part of that original SNL cast back in 1975. She won an Emmy and a Peabody Award for writing the puppy episode of Ellen, which was, of course, the uh, Ellen episode on her sitcom where her character came out. She went on to create the show According to Jim, which was a big hit for Jim Belushi, and then returned to her music with her group, The Reinforcements, and these days uh, making music for children as well, uh, being assisted by her talented daughter, Charlotte Dean. Here's our conversation with the multi-talented Tracy Newman. I'm ready to go. I'm not even sure what we're doing, but I'm ready to do it, whatever it is. I'm always ready. If you don't know what we're doing and we don't, this is fantastic. It's perfect. We'll just navigate (laughs) our way through this together. Well, thank you so much, for uh, first of all, for being with us this afternoon. We appreciate you making time for us. Thank you so much for wanting to have me, especially so close to Christmas where everybody seems so busy. Well, we want to talk about uh, so many different things that you've done. As someone who wears a lot of hats themselves, I have great uh, respect and admiration for what you've done through the course of your career. And it feels in many ways like it's come full circle from, from music back around to music. It's not only that, it's been, it's, I started out with music for children. And uh, now I have a company for children's records, which I just started doing like in five years ago, something like that. Uh, but in the 60s, somewhere like late 60s, I did a uh, series of uh, children's on PBS, a ch- uh, like a children's show. Not, a, not even a children's show. It was folk music for children. So, you know, I treated it like I was talking to kids, but I was really... The fan mail I was getting was from adults. <laughs> so well, what was it that attracted you to uh, to folk music? Did I read along the way that it was a Kingston Trio record that was the, the hook for you? Well, you know, I don't know if you, you're, you're younger than me, I think, but, but back then uh, when they were incredibly popular, almost like the Beatles probably, I mean, at least to me, uh, they had a song called Tom Dooley. I'm not sure if you remember that Hang song. Hang down your head, Tom Dooley. Oh, yeah. Like, 
get a singer here. Yes, <laughs> that is exactly the song. Well, if you try to play that song, I don't know if you play guitar, it's only two chords. So when I realized I could play that and strum it and just change my, you know, the chords to, you know, back and forth, I could perfect it pretty quickly. And you know how kids are. If you can't perfect it quickly, it's really hard to keep going. I mean, if you can't use it right away, you get really impatient. So once I realized I could do that and play it, I thought, well, okay, then I can do it with three chords and I can do this with different songs with four chords. And, you know, it became something that I understood I could do it. And I was, I was like 14 at the time when I started and I've been playing ever since. And, you know, it's not that hard to get better and better and better on the guitar if that's what you're loving. How did you get involved with the new Christie Minstrels? Um, there was a, a short period of time when, um, you know, that that group is eight men and two women. And most people in the group play guitar in the show. And I think one of the women played a banjo. That was kind of the way they did it. <laughs> and I uh, took somebody's place who dropped out right before they were going to do um, a television show. And somebody knew me. I, I got involved really through uh, because Barry McGuire and I had a duo. And they loved him because he was this big, strapping, you know, uh, dominant guy. And, and I was this cute little blonde girl. And so it was a good good to bring me in but they had somebody in mind for my part that sang soprano i don't i definitely don't sing soprano and they needed somebody with a high voice but anyway just for that tv show they used me for two of those shows and then uh, and then i was out of the group along with four or five people that they were just using for that tv show so you know when i say i was in the christy minstrels i was for about two months and it was very sad to me to not get to stay in there, but I know they needed people who could read music and they, I was a kid and you know, it was not the right timing for me. Well, as someone who uh, is part of an improv team around here, I am in awe of uh, your work, uh, really uh, getting the groundlings off the ground. One of the most influential improv and comedy teams ever. Well, yes. Yeah. It's not really a team. It's like a, you know, it's a company. We mm. started as a class Right. Like a lot of things start, you know, you're passionate about being in this class, whatever it is, and everybody's, you know, we're doing their best work, uh, doing comedy improvisation. And then, uh, you know, slowly you start bringing people in to watch it and then you have a show and and it just slowly and very organically developed into the groundlings. And yes, it's been uh, 45 years now it's still going strong and it's become the farm company for Saturday Night Live over the last 20 years, really. I mean, Phil Hartman. Well, for the first one was my sister, Lorraine Newman. Right. She was the first one that they chose from the Groundlings. And that was in like 1975. And then, uh, after that, they, they chose Phil Hartman and John Lovitz and uh, Will Ferrell and uh, Mel Melissa McCarthy and uh, Lisa Kudrow was chosen, not for SNL, but other things, and Kathy Griffin for other things. And then, um, I mean, I really could go on and on. Kristen <laughs> Wiig is from the Groundlings. I mean, they're all from the Groundlings. It's, more, it's just a, remarkable. Now, was it in the Groundlings that you met your writing partner? 
Yes, you are very, very up on things. Yeah, my, my writing partner is a man named Jonathan Stark. And here, you know, as usual, things in show business, this is how it works, okay? I was doing another kind of a voiceover job that he was on. We were both doing voiceovers for a little short period. And he turned to me at one point and he said, hey, uh, the people who are running Cheers have asked me to write a spec script, meaning a, a three, you know, just like a, like a sample script. And I don't know how to type. <laughs> so do you want to do that with me? And I, I looked at him and I thought, this guy really makes me laugh. He's so funny. And I know how to type really well. And I also <laughs> understand story. So together we were able to write them very fast and very funny to me anyway, or to us, you know, and we got hired by the people running Cheers. That was our first staff job, which talk about a lucky break. I mean, that was the biggest show on television, a uh, comedy show. And we were, uh, that's where we started. And uh, from there on to shows like Drew Carey and then Ellen, uh, where you won not only an Emmy Award, but a Peabody Award for arguably one of the most famous and certainly one of the most important episodes of a situation comedy in TV history. Yeah, uh, Ellen decided uh, that was quite a time to she just we had been on the show for three seasons and this was our fourth season on her show. And she decided to because she was gay, but she was on the show. She was dating men. And she just decided she didn't want to date men on the show anymore. It seemed dishonest and uncomfortable for her because she was gay. So she announced to the powers that be that she was going to come out in real life and in her show. And everybody said, you'll ruin your career. It's, you know, don't do it. And middle America, whatever that is these days <laughs> or then, you know, middle America doesn't know that you're gay and they're your America's sweetheart and blah, 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 you know. And she just risked all that because she wanted to be sort of comfortable in her own skin, you know. And uh, yeah, it was a kind of an exciting and sort of scary time. And then all of a sudden, um, because John Stark and I had been on the show since almost the beginning, I think that that's why uh, the studio and the network felt comfortable having us write that script. Uh, there are other people who wrote the second half, but John and I wrote the first half, which is where she ends up announcing that she's gay at the airport on over the PA system. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, she, but which, by the way, she pitched. That was her idea. You know, she she pitched the whole show. I mean, we we had to write out the story in detail, but she she really knew exactly what she wanted to do, and I don't think we changed very much in, in terms of her ideas. Whose idea was the toaster oven, which was brilliant? That was um, a writer's assistant. <laughs> One of the writer's assistant. You know, I wrote a song for the. That's called a uh, um, a. Uh, not the cold opening, but the end of the show, you know, the, the tag, tag, that's what it's called. It's been a while. Anyway, uh, the tag was going to be the song that I wrote and uh, we had already recorded it. One of the stars on the show had written, had sung it and it was produced and ready to go. And uh, Melissa Etheridge decided to do the show. And the, uh, one of these writer's assistants decided what if Melissa Etheridge gives Ellen a toaster oven for for coming out. 
<laughs> and that just seemed like such a funny idea. So that's what they ended up doing. We're talking with Tracy Newman here on Downtown Up. From there, you uh, created a very successful show uh, for Jim Belushi, according to Jim. Yeah, that was like interesting also that since my, my sister had worked with John Belushi, that I would end up creating a show uh, with my partner for Jim Belushi. I just thought was you know, kind of uh, fade or whatever. I don't know. It, it always struck me as fun. I mean, it had nothing to do with it because Lorraine didn't even know I was doing that at the time. And I didn't know Jim Belushi. And we, had, we were creating a show. We, we, we didn't have him in mind at first. But then when it was suggested that we use him, it just seemed, wow, that's a great idea, you know. And uh, and then when Courtney Thorne Smith signed on to the show, wow, that we just knew we had a good thing. Hey, was it the success of According to Jim that allowed you to move back into music? You are really on top of things. <laughs> yes. Basically, what you're saying is it allowed me to make enough money to be in the music business again. <laughs> Yeah, the music business is not a place to make money, especially now. I mean, even back then, maybe you could get a hit record with somebody else singing it, you know, if you wrote a song. But everybody's writing their own things now. And uh, and with the music business the way it is, you really, I mean, I get probably, I don't know how many uh, plays I get on Spotify and through Alexa and all of those things, you know, the all of the, the ways that people can listen uh, the things they have in their house, I can have thousands and thousands and I don't know about millions, but hundreds of thousands of listening, you know, people listening to my songs and make $12. Oh, yeah. So, you know, it's it's really uh, not a good time financially to be in the music business, unless you're a star, of course. Well, you've been making uh, music with your band, uh, Tracy Newman and the Reinforcements. Is the story true that the Reinforcements actually came up during a performance from the audience and began harmonizing with you? Yeah, it's, uh, I was at this very, very tiny club in Santa Monica and I was singing a song I wrote about my sister actually. And it had a chorus that just went Lorraine, 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 you know, just over and over again uh, with really pretty chords. And there were, I could hear somebody in the audience singing it and it was really pretty. And I said, I don't, whoever is singing that, can you come up and do this with me? And they came up and it was that kind of uh, epiphany where I thought, this is actually a sound. It's not just that they're singing good harmony. We sound great together, at least to me. And so we were together for 10 years. Uh, different women took, you know, they, they, the women, it's harder to keep women singers because it's for so many reasons. Uh, but the musician, because one another thing is she wasn't a musician or she wasn't playing an instrument in my group, the, the original girl. I, she was great though. So I replaced the women occasionally, but the men stayed, you know, and um, it was, uh, I did that for 10 years and it was great. And then I started doing children's music. So, you know, and, I, didn't, I didn't need a band. And with that, you got the opportunity to work with your daughter, Charlotte Dean. I did. My daughter's a wonderful artist and does, you know, I, I don't even know how to describe her work, but it's beautiful. Yeah, and she did the uh, my she did my CD covers of the first two. The third one's a picture of me. So, but the back of it she did the back of the album, and uh, she does a cartoon page for each song, 
you know, a, a drawing, mm. for, you know, like a um, coloring book. I'm sorry, I meant to say coloring book, a coloring book page. So, um, yeah, it's been amazing to work with her. And now she has a son. So I have a grandson, a two-year-old grandson, and whew, I'm just uh, totally inspired now. And how great is it uh, after so many years as an entertainer? And not that you didn't always do this, but but really to be doing what you want to do. Um, well, you, if you're talking about writing songs without anybody sort of looking over your shoulder and telling you, you know, what to write, because in television, I'm writing, I was really having fun, but I was always told to change things. Mm. And, you know, even if I thought it was perfect, I had to figure out a way to use that suggestion to make it even better if I could, which is a great training ground. And, you know, you have to really drop your ego at the door. But then you're writing songs for yourself and nobody's telling you what to do. And it's all about you, you know, so uh, it feels great. And then sometimes I'm tougher on myself than my bosses in television were, you know, uh, I sometimes I'm starting a song and it takes a year because I'm just or long, you know, or longer to get it right, you know. When maybe other people would stop short of that of what I think that is right, you know. Absolutely. Well, the music is wonderful. Uh, I've got a five-year-old at home, and uh, boy, there's nothing better than doing something that can bring a smile to their face and then also get them interested in, in being creative themselves. Oh, yeah. Do you have a boy or a girl? I have a little boy. Oh, my God. I, I don't know if you have my third CD, but the first song on the third CD for children is called I Like to Walk My Dinosaur. Now, I don't know about your boy, but my two-year-old is very much into dinosaurs, and I know another three-year-old boy who is, too. So if he likes dinosaurs, that's a good song to play. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, Tracy, it's wonderful to talk with you. I've been a fan of your work for a long, long time, and we appreciate you making time for us at this very busy time of year. Thank you so much. This has been a total pleasure. Tracy Newman here on Downtown, the podcast. Very fun conversation with her. And but yeah, with those something about those multi-talented folks, Carrie, the people that can do so many things. I'm jealous of most of them. <laughs> it is amazing uh, the the skills that she has across such a wide variety of entertainment mm -hmm. styles. Yeah, and and to be involved with so many important uh, groups and programs through the years. So uh, that was a blast talking with Tracy Newman. We'll take a little break here for a word from the good folks at Cross Insurance. When we come back. We talked with Jeff Abraham about the performers who died with their boots on, died in the act of performing his book, The Show Won't Go On, coming up next on Downtown, the podcast. Since its founding in 1954, Cross Insurance has grown from a small family-owned agency that started in Bangor, Maine, into one of the largest super regional insurance agencies in New England. With the network of offices throughout New England, Cross Insurance works with top carriers to provide maximum value to you, your family, and your business. We are proud to be the official insurance broker of the New England Patriots and would welcome the chance to provide security for your team. For more information, visit CrossInsurance.com. Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. <laughs> You're asking. 
asking yourself, why are they playing Tiny Tim? Tiptoe through the chulas. Well, first of all, if you're of a certain age, you remember Tiny Tim, who became a well bit of a cultural phenomenon in the late 1960s, married live on The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson. The reason we're playing that song is because Tiny Tim is part of a, well, a, a select group of individuals who have died doing what they loved. Tiny Tim died during a performance, and performers who have done that are the subject of a very interesting book by our friend Jeff Abraham and Bert Kearns, and it's actually a very affectionate look at those performers who died in the act. The full title of the book, The Show Won't Go On, The Most Shocking, Bizarre, and Historic Deaths of Performers on Stage. Here's our conversation with author Jeff Abraham. Jeff, thanks so much for being with us. Thanks for having me. This is really a terrific book, and uh, I, I guess the first thing, and I've said it to people, it's not its not as morbid as it sounds, and it's actually very respectful of those performers. Yeah, we're very proud of that fact. Even though the, though the book has the word death in the title, we really say it's a celebration of lives of these wonderful performers who um, gave so much to their art. And I understand, uh, as you point out in the foreword to the book, that the idea came to you of all places, at an Elvis Presley tribute concert. Uh, and I also add to that, I have to give a little credit to Donald Trump. It was a Trump 29 casino, to be exact. <laughs> um, so he, uh, we can give Mr. Trump a little credit for something. Um, yes, I went to see an Elvis tribute show, and part of the show was a gentleman, you don't know his name, but you know the voice. Ladies and gentlemen, Elvis has left the building. Thank you and good night. A man named Al DeVoren, who had been with the Colonel since 1955, and after the show, he was mulling about in the lobby, and we were chatting, and someone said, Al, when are you going to write a book? He goes, yeah, yeah, I know, I have time. And we said goodnight. This was Saturday night at 1030, and he was killed Sunday morning in a car accident. And I was thought about 12, I just saw him 12 hours ago. How could that be? And then you think about... And I was more intrigued by the stat of someone's last performance, like Hank Williams had died after a show or Elvis had bags were packed, you know, on the way to a show. And um, John Enwistle, the Who, died allegedly with hookers and blow in his <laughs> hotel room while the Who was waiting to do a reunion t show the next night. And then Bert, my great partner, said, you know what, I think there's enough people here who di literally died on stage and the focus of the book changed to what you now have in your hand. Well, and some remarkable stories in there, and um, I could spend hours talking about them, but I, I want to highlight a few here. And let's start with uh, the case of Dick Sean, one of my favorite comics. And it's always rough when your death is confused for being part of your act. You know, if that's any takeaway we, we say from the book is... Don't be a comedian and die on stage because people think it's a new part of your uh, part of your act. It's a new piece of business you're trying to break in. So this great comedian, as you mentioned, had been on the this um, he had been on the Mad Mad World and um, had, and the producers, but he was a very avant-garde, out of the world performer, and he. In the beginning of the show, he would lie under a pile of newspapers and pop up, you know, so you never knew what was going to happen. So at one point in the show, he says, pretend there's an atomic blast and everyone around us is gone and I am your leader and I want you to follow me. And then almost on cue, he fell down and had a heart attack. And people thought again, you know, is that a better, is there a better setup for a punchline than that? <laughs> and people started to yell, take his wallet. 
And then his son, Sean, Sean, his son Adam, was the stage manager. And he's watching. He goes, you know, my dad normally doesn't fall in, that, in the show at that point. And if he did, he wouldn't fall that kind of hard. And next, week, next thing you know, comedy turned to tragedy. And we have a wonderful detailed account with Adam. And he's still, you know, broken up and touched by this day. Uh, another one that uh, I, I latched onto because we had Joe Poznanski on the show last week talking about his wonderful new book, uh, The Life and Afterlife of Harry Houdini. The story of amazing Joe Burris, who tried to do the escape that even Houdini wouldn't try. Absolutely. You know, uh, it's funny, Joe and I seem to be following each other. We did a, we were back to back on a podcast. He has a wonderful book out. Um, you know, ever since Houdini died in 1926 on Halloween, People have been trying to outdo Houdini. You know, oh, if he went, you know, escape from a straitjacket three stories up, I'll do it six stories up, and so on and so forth. If Houdini was buried alive, I will do buried alive. I'll I'll go deeper, and I won't just use um, dirt. I'll use cement, and that's what the amazing Joe did. And unfortunately, it got the best of him. And we interviewed his son, and there was a perfect example. His son was very flattered, and. And really appreciate that we were paying respect to his father after all these years, and really wants his father to be remembered, and not that these people should be remembered as a, you know, a, as some cheap joke or something, you know. But um, yeah, it is it is a tragedy. But Pendulette told us, you know, the real secret to magic and escapes is never to do anything more dangerous than sitting in your own uh, <laughs> easy chair or bathtub. Well, yes, and and you. Highlight that even more by chronicling the incredibly long list of people who have died attempting to do the bullet catch. The most famous was a gentleman named Chung Ling Su, who died in 1918. And then we have some as recent as 10 years ago. Do you think at some point the people would have gotten it right? Because I will tell you the secret. I don't know if I'm supposed to, but <laughs> it's a trick. Unfortunately, some people have not mastered the, the trick, and there's been tragedy. And some, some of them have, I'm sorry to, to make light of it, but one time somebody came out of the audience and said, oh, can you, you can catch a bullet, try to catch mine, and shot the, the magician. We're talking with Jeff Abraham about his new book, The Show Won't Go On. And, well, all of these are sad stories, but I don't know if there is any sadder to me because I'm I'm of that age that I remember him coming to prominence in the late 60s uh, on Laugh-In and The Tonight Show. But the story of the demise of Tiny Tim I found especially sad. You know, some performers, you know, unfortunately keep on performing longer than they do due to health reasons or financial reasons. And Tiny Tim had done a ukulele um, Hall of Fame event, and he had a heart attack. And the doctor said, you know, you need to take a year off. You should not be working. And he went home to Minneapolis where he was living with his last wife, Miss Sue, and he did this woman's auxiliary club, you know, not a, a way to go out, you know, with guns blazing. And this little show, at the end of his show, you know, he said to his wife, I don't think I'm feeling well. He had just done his trademark tiptoe through the tulips, and um, he took a step and uh, died of a heart attack. And that was so sad, too, because uh, much of the audience had left, and even the, the band that was supposed to be backing him bailed out for that performance, too. Yeah, they didn't even know he was supposed to be there. Again, it was not the utmost. You know, some people you say, you know, he 
you know, that cliche, he died doing what he loved. But in, 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 in when you're dying in a, you know, in a, in a woman's auxiliary club and the band could care less you're performing, I don't think that's really the way you want to go out. You also write about one of the most famous onstage deaths in entertainment history, uh, the famous uh, Dick Cavett show with J.I. Rodale. But as you point out, most of what we think we know about that incident isn't really accurate. It's the most famous TV uh, episode of all time that no one has ever seen because it never aired. Um, a very good friend of mine works for Dick Cavett Productions and made a promise to me. He said, if you sell this book, we, I will allow Bert and yourself to be the first civilians, the first people, writers to watch this episode. And it was always thought, first of all, J.I. Rodale was a health expert, a longevity expert. As Dick Cavett said, could you ask for anything better? You know, and, and Dick has been talking about it since 1971. So for that reason, people have always felt that people have watched that episode. And it had always thought that he had finished his segment, moved over one chair, and the next guest was Pete Hamill, the journalist. And people had, and you heard the death rattle, which sounds like a snore. And then would always thought that Dick Cavett cleverly said, oh, Mr. Rodale, am I boring you? Never was said. And had always thought that his his last line was, "Oh, I could live to a hundred, and then he died, but again, he had finished his segment and had moved over, so we were able to really um watch it and correct so many urban legends and even dick in 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 all fairness, you know for telling the story in seventy one years it's not like Nora Desmond watching the episode over and over again, so he may misresem um remember a fact, so we were able to really give a detailed account of this terrible incident that no one had seen before and it's very eerie to watch to this day you also write about one of the most bizarre episodes in in television news history and that's the on-air suicide by the reporter and anchor christine chubbuck truly tragic and um oddly enough they made two movies about her life um yeah, it's amazing what has been captured on television and now with YouTube of, of live events like that are are easily found. In fact, one of the de- deaths that happened on live television and does exist to this day, we, there's a name, Tommy Cooper, a British comedy mm. musician, very much in the name of in the traditional Carl Ballantyne, who we all remember from the Ed Sullivan show. He was on McHale's Navy and where he would do tricks and they all went wrong. But he was on a live British variety show, and that clip survives on YouTube. It's probably the most viewed death uh, quote on stage of all time. And every now and then, the Tommy Cooper Society tries to petition YouTube to take it down. So it's, it's you know you know 200 years ago we didn't have a record of this, but now we can go on YouTube and we can these uh, deaths have been captured. Jeff uh, Abraham talking with us about his book. The show won't go on. So uh, overall, the families were very supportive uh, of your efforts to chronicle these stories? Yeah, the only incident, somebody asked us that. I remember, I think one of the symphony orchestras, we wanted a photo, and they they decided, you know, you need to get the photo from the family. They didn't want to supply the photo. But otherwise, uh, you know, Dick Sean's son and um, the amazing Joe Jr., and uh, we interviewed Nick Walenda, the, the grandson mm. of great Carl Walenda. And then we, they saw that we were doing this very respectfully, you know, because, you know, the publishers wanted us to be a little snarky, but that was never our intention. And uh, we, so we did, we did not do any bait and switches. Everybody, I think, would be very happy. And we wanted to read a, 
to be engaged by this person, because otherwise, why would you care that this person had left us? You know, when you're reading this chapter, we wanted you to be engaged about this person. Was there one story out of all of them that you researched that you found uh, especially poignant? You know, there were ironies in the book, and, and sometimes, you know, they made for a great ending, unfortunately. And, you know, Bert and I would, you know, so what's the button? And, you know, someone, one of the agents said to us, this is the worst mystery novel I've ever read because the person dies at the beginning of every chapter. <laughs> but um, the first entry is Jane Little, and I think it's the epitome. She was 87 years old, literally lived up to her name, trying to get the Guinness Book of World Records for the longest tenure in a symphony orchestra. And she was battling health problems. She played the double stand-up bass, which was bigger than she was. And during the encore of the symphony, she she died of a heart attack. Now, that alone would be a pretty dramatic story. But the song she was playing was, There's No Business Like Show Business. <laughs> we, we smile, and you and she lived a great life. So you could say she she died doing what she loved. But if you're young, like Dick Sean, you know, his son Adam says, well, maybe, but my dad wasn't done. My dad had another 20-plus years in him, and we wanted to see more of him. The the Jane Little story and the, the other one that, that I was struck by, the irony, or I guess we would say the poor choices made, uh, the story of uh, Albert Brooks and Bob Einstein's dad dying at a Friars Club event. And, and folks, was it Milton Berle who said, somebody sing something, do something, and Tony Martin sings, there's, there's no tomorrow. <laughs> you know, we were very good about doing a lot of fact-checking and double-checking, interviewing people, and... That may be one of those stories where there, there could be an urban legend to that, it, it, you know, because there's another brother named Cliff Einstein. He always said Milton had always embellished his part, but it was too good. And, you know, there's an, another comedian named Joe E. Ross. We remember mm. Bill Cohen, Car 54, and he was performing at a, in a rec room in a, in a kind of, I shouldn't say seedy, but a little retirement village, apartments. And he died in mid-performance, and his wife went to collect the performance, and they only gave her $50. And he said, wait, he was due 100 He goes, well, he didn't finish the show, so you're only getting half the money. <laughs> and you could, I could probably tell you 10 comedians who would say, oh, I was there that night. I remember when it, it happened. And it was just too good a story not to put in the book. The book is called The Show Won't Go On, The Most Shocking, Bizarre, and Historic Deaths of Performers on Stage. It really is a, a celebration in many ways of, of these artists, these performers, and the whole entertainment business. I, I enjoyed reading it so much, Jeff. It's been great to talk with you. We wish you and Bert great success with the book. Thank you so much. Truly a pleasure. Jeff Abraham here on Downtown discussing his book, The Show Won't Go On, The Most Shocking, Bizarre, and Historic Deaths of Performers on Stage. It would be appropriate at this time, Carrie, if I just keeled over right here, but I'm not ready to oblige quite yet. I'll have the mics rolling <laughs> when it happens. Thank you. I appreciate that. And you know, maybe I'll maybe there'll be a sequel and Jeff will find room for me there. Uh, fun time talking to Jeff Abraham as well as the talented Tracy Newman on this week's edition of Downtown, the podcast. Brought to you by Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. Thank you for joining us, and we'll see you next time on Downtown.